Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-W Media. Before we get to this week's episode, please look in the description of this episode for a link to our very first listener survey. We really want your feedback so we can make the podcast better. Plus, if you fill out the survey, you can win an Amazon gift card. Now let's get to the episode. This week, billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein was indicted by federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York for conspiring to engage in sex trafficking of minors. Epstein notoriously engaged in sexual exploitation of underage girls in South Florida, but he did not face federal charges due to a controversial agreement with then United States Attorney Alex Acosta. Acosta recently resigned as Trump's Secretary of Labor after he struggled to defend his resolution of the Epstein case. Will Epstein finally be brought to justice? Or will the agreement he made with Acosta save him one more time? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm ordinarily joined by my friend Patty Vasquez. But she's on a trip this week with her family, so we're going to be getting our guest on the line right now. You know her well. Her name is Mimi Roca. She's a former federal prosecutor from the Southern District of New York. Now she's an MSNBC legal analyst. You probably see her on TV often. And she has already written a lot about the Epstein case, uh, most recently in the Daily Beast. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Mimi. It's good to have you. Thanks, Renata. It's really good to be with you, especially to talk about this topic. Yeah, this is a topic both of us have uh, tweeted about and talked about. And recently we have both written about. I think it's something we both were uh upset about uh, for quite some time that this ha- this that this man had not been brought to justice. And I, I have to admit, I was surprised to see that the Southern District of New York had arrested him. I did not see that coming. Um, yeah, I, um, I I won't say I was I was shocked, actually, because, you know, I, I'm familiar with the idea of some things in the papers in our area right? Like the articles that we're talking about what happened in Florida, we're talking about this injustice. um, And, you know, that gets most like it got our attention, that gets prosecutors attention. And I kept seeing that, you know, he also had um, a house in New York and that there might have been conduct there. And so, you know, I'm totally speculating, but my guess is some enterprising agent and prosecutor said, hey, let's let's look at this. 
and they did. And and I I think you would agree probably like that actually you know happens quite a bit that that people read prosecutors and investigators read and get leads from um you know investigative reporters. Yeah, it does happen. And I also think, you know, and I was talking uh, about this today in regards to the R. Kelly case. Of course, uh, R. Kelly was just indicted federally in two different districts. And my uh, former uh, my uh, former office of Chicago uh, in Northern District of Illinois and then in the Eastern District of New York, Brooklyn, um, indicted him. Um, one thing that, that um, prosecutors think about is the concept of general deterrence. In other words, when you have someone like Jeffrey Epstein, the message that the public is getting from that case is that if you're rich and powerful, you can get away with doing heinous things and you won't get brought to justice or potentially that victims could be ignored or not uh, taken seriously by the federal government. And so um, and the same, I think, in the in the R. Kelly case, there was an impression that he had escaped uh, the hand of justice, uh, particularly, obviously, there was a documentary recently about that subject. And so now uh, in in all these different offices in both the R. Kelly case and, and obviously what we're trying to talk about today, the Jeffrey Epstein case, prosecutors thought there's an important, I think, message to send to the public, which is that people like Jeffrey Epstein are subject to the law and they can be brought to justice. Absolutely. Um, I think that was one of the most important sort of issues that has come up in this case, you know, is that, is that it really seemed like the reason Epstein got this, you know, what we've called slap on the wrist, sweetheart deal the first time around was because at a, at a minimum, it was because he had these high powered, you know, many, if, uh, there's several of them, high powered uh, lawyers who seemed to sort of outlawyer the government, whether there was more that went on there or not, I'm sure we'll talk about that, but that at a minimum that, that it was the result of, um, uh, money sort of buying a better deal. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think it's important before we get to, and we have a lot of amazing questions from listeners, but before we get to that, I do want to provide a little bit of background here. And um, I think as a starting point that in, he was, so we know that there was a state court proceeding against, or a state court investigation of, of, uh, of Epstein, and then, or excuse me, a state investigation um, and then there was a federal investigation in the District of South Florida. Obviously, Alex Acosta, n- now the former labor secretary, was the uh, United States attorney uh, in charge of that office at the time. And ultimately what happened was there was a non-prosecution agreement between the Southern District of Florida and Epstein that obviously is very controversial. You referred to it a moment ago. Can you uh, explain a little bit about uh, what that what that means, what that was uh, for us, Mimi? Yeah, so I mean, a non-prosecution agreement is, it, you know, pretty much what it sounds like. It's when a uh, prosecutor's office, the government, agrees not to prosecute either a person or an entity. It's used a lot in financial cases with, uh, you know, corporate entities. Um, and uh, in this case, the the agreement not to prosecute Epstein was in exchange for him agreeing to plead to a state crime. So instead of facing federal charges, which could have um, carried very federal sex trafficking charges, which could have carried very significant penalties. And in the non-prosecution agreement, they actually list some of the statutes and those statutes, as you know, carry um, very high maximum sentences and at that time, after 2006, carried mandatory minimum sentences of 10, 15 years 
um, per count. Um, so really high penalties that he could have faced, but instead he was allowed to plead guilty to these state court crimes that were uh, carried uh, only an 18-month sentence. And I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but he didn't even end up serving an 18-month sentence. He ended up serving only a 13-month sentence. And in that sentence, uh, he had, I think, five out of the seven days were sort of work release days where he was allowed to go to an office and work. So very, very little actual, you know, jail time, a, a really insignificant um, plea and sentence. Yeah. So, and let's talk about that a little bit. You know, one thing is just a starting point. I will say that this this agreement is very unusual, extraordinary agreement in many different ways. Yeah. But I will say, yeah, no question about that. I will say from my own experience investigating uh, human trafficking cases and sexual exploitation of minors cases, that it is not, um, it's certainly not uncommon for there to be parallel federal and state proceedings in cases like Mm -hmm. this. And there have been times in my career where we did not bring federal charges and ultimately state charges uh, were the resolution um, in cases of this type because we just didn't have the evidence in the federal case. So, you know, that in and of itself is not the problem. The issue is uh, for Mr. Acosta and the, the reason there's so much controversy here is First of all, some unusual aspects of the agreement. Uh, there's uh, so many of them that I don't even know if we'll be able to cover them uh, succinctly here. And then the the extensive reporting by Julie Brown of the Miami Herald and other investigative reporters who've uncovered a lot of evidence that suggests that actually the, the, the case against Epstein was very strong. Obviously, the Southern District also shares that view. And I would just say that the Southern District has brought the case here in 2019. Um you know, and generally speaking, it's not always the case, but usually memories are um, not going to be any better in 2019 than they were in 2007 of an event that happened years prior. And so it, it, there's a lot, I'd say that the the the, uh, the assertion that uh, Mr. Acosta was making that there was evidentiary issues, um, you know, seems to be at odds with, with that. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, and I, I want to echo something I think you were saying because it, it's important to say. I, and I said this in the very first article I wrote about this whole Epstein Acosta saga many months ago. Um, I said, you know, I'm very wary of doing Monday morning quarterbacking on prosecutorial decisions like this one in general. In other words, deciding whether or not to move forward with the case or give a plea to someone. Um, the charging decisions, those are very, very subjective decisions often. They're extremely fact-based. And prosecutors, it's, it's, it is, even with the degree of investigative reporting, it is, it is the prosecutor who knows their case. It is the prosecutor often who is, you know, face-to-face with the, the victim witnesses and can just, you know, really make a judgment like, how is this person going to do on the stand? As a general matter, those all, those are all true things. And that's why part of what Acosta said at his press conference when he was defending this had some surface appeal, right? It's like, well, this was a really hard you know, case and a hard decision, and we make these judgments every day. The, the problem here and why it just doesn't hold up and why I and you and so many other former prosecutors, I think, were willing to say, no, wait a minute, is that there were so many red flags here that this is not why this case wasn't prosecuted. It wasn't prosecuted federally 
I don't, I don't know the reason, quite honestly. And I know that's kind of the burning question, but it wasn't just any other kind of um, tough prosecutorial decision. It really did not, does not seem like that. And some of the red flags, we can talk about it, you know, just, just to throw one out there, were these inappropriate meetings that Acosta at the time as U.S. attorney had with defense counsel, uh, one in particular, Jay Lefkowitz, who he had a prior personal relationship with from having worked with him at a law firm, and frankly, probably means Acosta should have recused himself from overseeing this case altogether, but certainly shouldn't have been having private off-site meetings with upstate, uh, with uh, uh, Lefkowitz to talk about, you know, one of the most controversial parts of this plea deal, which was not telling the victims that it was happening. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, at the very least, as you point out, has a, 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 an appearance of impropriety. And here, um, what I what is not clear to me, one thing that I haven't quite figured out is whether or not the issue here was um, the the relationship being too cozy or too aggressive on the part of um, the the defense team. In other words, a lot of times when you have a let's say in this case, Epstein's purported to be a billionaire. I don't know how how wealthy he is. We certainly a wealthy man. Um, a lot of times wealthy defendants hire um, defense attorneys who are hyper aggressive and they try to go at the prosecutors every way they possibly can and put the prosecutors on the defensive. And that often can generate results that are unjust, uh, but, you know, obviously uh, uh, helpful to that particular uh, potential or in this case, putative defendant. defendant. And, um you know, there has been, there was some reporting that there had been investigation of the prosecutors by Epstein's team. So my initial thought was, okay, maybe Epstein kind of, his team went at him and they got a little, um, they got a little shell-shocked and they decided there was some, you know, they didn't want to deal with what Epstein's team was going to throw at them. And that was potentially very hyper-aggressive in a way that you'll see kind of unequal treatment of somebody who's, because he's got rich, rich and has resources. And on the other hand, but on the other hand, as you point out, there's a lot of evidence of coziness to this relationship, which suggests that this is some sort of, you know, special deal that was done uh, to give consideration to a man who really did not deserve um, extraordinary consideration given his conduct. Yeah. And look, I mean, Acosta back in 2011 wrote a kind of statement um, that he submitted, I think, to the Daily Beast trying to, you know, defend the deal. And he talked about most of that statement was talking about uh, the defense attorneys in the Florida case uh, and said and he, he used words like they, you know, it was an assault by these defense attorneys that we had never experienced anything like that. And you see that if you if you look at some of the communications, the emails between the defense attorneys and the prosecutors, which are detailed in uh, a lot of the civil litigation and Judge Mara's opinion in Florida, um, you, you know, you see that. I, I think both things can be true. You know, it, it, it is it is sometimes the case that when you, you have high-powered defense attorneys, especially more than one of them, and it is someone who the prosecutor, you know, sort of knows and, and, and feels um, you know, almost it seems to me that there was almost this sort of awe relationship going on where Acosta, you know, just just was um, not treating them, not treating defense counsel like they were his adversary, um, but more someone that he either had to or or wanted to kind of 
you know, kowtow to a little bit. And of course, the real tragedy in all of that is that the, the people that Acosta and his prosecutors should have been looking out for were the victims. And that is where like the tragedy came in is that they they just they didn't they 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 really let the victims down. Correct. And so one one thing that we can be sure of about this agreement that is not just suspect but is unlawful is the fact that uh, there had been, there was a statute on the books that required the victims to be notified, uh, and a judge has found a federal judge has found that that the victims were not notified as they they were they, as the law required of this non prosecution agreement, and in this particular case, this isn't just a typical agreement. In other words. I handled, and I know I'm sure you handled dozens, hundreds, whatever of of federal uh, cases when we were prosecutors. And there are a lot of routine things that happen in a case that you may not necessarily be in touch with a victim about. But this is far from routine. This is far from a small uh, event. This is the major event in the Epstein investigation. And it is an unusual, uh, shocking resolution to the case that, of course, you would want to notify the victims of. And it seems to me that Mr. Acosta's defense of this is, well, we reached the agreement like late on a Friday and we couldn't reach him by over, you know, we tried reaching him over the weekend and we we didn't, which is contrary to what a federal judge found. Right, exactly. So the judge found that they, they first of all, that the facts are, are not how Acosta tried to sort of paint them as, as almost like it was, it was uh, well, we were on this really tight time frame and it was rushed. I mean, first of all, that just makes no sense. Like, you're, you're the U.S. attorney in Florida. You've gotten this guy to agree to plead in state court. If you feel things are moving too fast, then adjourn the plea. You know, ask Florida to adjourn the plea. Um, I mean, it was just one excuse after another. And, and you know, you, you almost you don't even need it. I mean, it, I think it is important that the judge found that they broke the law in not notifying the victims. And, you know, I'm sure you're familiar that that part of what Acosta and, and the prosecutors said in, in their defense to the judge was, well, there weren't actually federal charges pending in uh, federal court in Florida. Right. We, we never actually filed charges. So there weren't identifiable victims under the um, Victims' Rights Act that we were required to notify. Well, that is such a technical argument because, of course, we, we know from reporting that there was a draft indictment, number one. Number two, these victims were very much identified in every sense of the word. Um, and in fact, one of the things that I found kind of outrageous about this was that they had turned over the identities of the victims to defense counsel, the very same victims that they weren't notifying about the plea. Um, and, but putting the law aside for a second, I mean, I'm sure this, I'm, I'm sure this is your experience too. In a case like this, where you have victims who have experienced um, physical trauma, emotional trauma, you know, every kind of trauma you can imagine, it, you, it's not, you don't need a law to tell you to keep them in the loop and look out for them. It's just that that's part of what motivates you to do the job in the first place. And I think that's, you know, part of what is so outrageous about the case. Yeah, no question. And no question about it. And I would also say that it would not be standard practice to reveal really anything to the defense about the details of your case uh, prior to an indictment and certainly not pursuant to an agreement like this. In other words, 
typically the government would be very concerned about protecting victims, particularly victims who had been victimized by someone like Epstein. Uh, I think the standard approach to someone like Epstein is the way that the government has uh, treated as uh, the prosecutors have handled the, the more recent arrests of Epstein and R. Kelly, where they're both saying he should be detained. I mean, that would be, you know, I used to prosecute uh, cases not like this one. I mean, there's no case that's as crazy as this case uh, in terms of that I've seen of in terms of just the sheer scope of the 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 exploitation of ch- of children by um, a, a person of means and influence but uh, you know i handled smaller cases that were you know where somebody would be engaging in exploitation of children and we were all very very deeply concerned about those children and making sure that you know, the person was detained and that the, these children's identities were protected and that certainly that they were not going to be contacted or tampered with in any way. So the idea that you're going to be providing anything to the defense counsel um, is suspect to me. And as you point out, just common sense tells you that you need to be, um, you know, certainly notifying these victims, but also you should be advocating um, for them. And And it would be very hard for me uh, if I was a prosecutor, to advocate for a non-prosecution agreement if the victims disagreed, much less if I hadn't informed them uh, about it, and particularly in a case where there's such, hein- such a heinous crime has been committed. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've sat in countless, you know, um, meetings uh, where we have talked about this sort of weighing of proceeding to trial, where you're going to have to put uh, victim witnesses on the stand versus taking a plea. And every single conversation that we've had like that, whether it be, you know, a sexual exploitation case involving minors, which is obviously very unique and, and very sensitive, or lots of other kinds of cases that implicate these um, concerns, like, you know, gang cases where you have a victim who is afraid to testify against, you know, the, the perpetrator. Um, uh, drug cases, even where you have, you know, a cooperator who, who, you know, afraid to testify against the person he or she worked for. I mean, um, you know, nothing as sensitive really as dealing with minors and sexual, sexual exploitation, but these are things that we think about all the time as prosecutors. And we always, always go to, uh, the victims and sit and talk with them and say, look, ultimately it is our decision whether or not to plead the case out, but we want to discuss it with you. We want to hear what you think. This is something that we want to, you know, weigh with you, you know, and, and it's amazing how impactful their views on it can be. And and when you sit down and talk to a victim and say, look, this is going to be hard. You're going to get on the stand. You're going to get cross-examined. It's you know going to be tough, but we're willing to do, we believe you and we're willing to have your story told to the jury um, and help you do that in, in an effort to seek as much justice as possible if, if, if you think you're willing to do it. And so often they say, yes, I want to do this. I know it's going to be horrible. I'm scared, all of those things, but I'm willing to do it. And again, you don't let, you're not going to let your victim witness decide whether or not you're taking a case to trial or pleading it out or whatever. But it's going to have a huge impact on on your thought process as a prosecutor. Absolutely. And that's that's that is how the process is supposed to work, where prosecutors are communicating with victims, taking their their uh, views into account, 
uh, how they feel about going forward, going into account. So it's very, very unusual here. This appeared to be um, the uh, uh, Mr. Acosta and his team were acting very much, uh, you know, in league or at least at the behest of or or in 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 consultation with the defense not who are they should be their opposition not with the victims and so one issue that i think is really uh, telling is of course right after mr acosta very shortly after mr acosta made his statement um the state uh prosecutor the former state prosecutor who was the head of that office at the time issued a statement saying that mr acosta was rewriting history and he did refer to the 53-page draft indictment that was prepared by the Southern District of Florida by Mr. Acosta, by Mr. Acosta's office. And, um, uh, you know, I will tell you that indictment has always been, to me, a major red flag here because I um, had drafted, I'm sure you have too, drafted many draft indictments in my day. Uh, 53 pages is long for any indictment. I've indicted, indicted many very complicated white-collar crimes, um, and 53 pages is a long indictment. And I would not draft an indictment, certainly not one that's that detailed, unless I was so far down the road that I was intending to seek approval for an indictment, and I thought I had the evidence to prove it. That's what that tells me. And so... That really flies in the face of um, any explanation that they didn't have the evidence to bring the case. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I, I'm going to push back a little bit um, to say that, you know, I think in a case that is very victim witness based, it is possible to have your indictment, to technically have your evidence. But I've met with, you know, all of these victims and they are all going to, you know, sort of, um, they're all going to fall apart on the stand. They, they are just not either because they don't want to, or they're not going to hold up on the stand. I, I do think that is a, a, a calculus that prosecutors have to weigh sometimes sure. in a victim based case. I don't think that's what happened here though. So I'm agreeing with you, but I just, as a general matter, don't want people, you know, to sort of assume that every time a prosecutor has, an indictment that is based on victim witnesses, that means, well, they should just go to trial because there, there's a lot that goes into that decision there, you know? Um, but here, I, I just, I don't buy that that was the real reason because number one, they weren't talking to all the victims. There were, there were over 30 of them whose stories all seemed to corroborate each other. And those were the same victims that were being kept in the dark. Um, and again, there's such a discrepancy between what he could have faced. I mean, even if you if, if the, the reason was there was some litigation risk, you don't go from a sex trafficking indictment with, you know, multiple mandatory minimum counts to a state court plea with, you know, a 13 month sentence. Um, you know, that it just it just doesn't make it just doesn't add up. It doesn't. And, and you, I think you make some excellent points. You're right about that. I mean, it's certainly the case that even after indictment, sometimes uh, proof changes and the, the government does occasionally uh, dismiss charges or plead them down to a lower uh, a lower uh, type of crime when, the, you know, witnesses go south or the evidence changes or something like that. So that, that definitely does happen. But uh, it, uh, it, it would have told me is just essentially at some point in time, obviously things change, 
uh, somebody there thought they had enough evidence to bring a whole panoply of charges, enough to fit 53 pages. Yeah, and to your point earlier that we now see the Southern District bringing these charges based in part on some of the same witnesses years later when it's actually harder to do. Right. I mean, exactly. Over in New York, where, I mean, a lot of the conspiracy obviously occurred in Florida. So, yeah, it's it's hard. To, it's hard. To, uh, it, there's a lot. It's it would be very hard to defend some of this. And I want to turn to something else about this that is not only um, hard, I think, hard to defend or certainly very unusual, but also I think bears to bigger issues with this agreement. So as both of us know, the the uh, United States Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Florida can only enter into agreements to bind that office. And the way things work is that each in U.S. Attorney's Office, because you don't want to have every U.S. Attorney's Office having to get the uh, um, approval of the other ninety-something U.S. Attorney's offices every time they sign an agreement, they they don't they don't uh, they're not authorized to bind other offices. They they don't do that generally. And if there are other offices that are bound, there are, there are discussions with that office. And certain parts of this agreement, and I have it in front of me, um, seem to reflect that. Um, where they'll talk about in this district, they'll they'll kind of you know they will. Um, talk about, you know, charges not being brought in this district. But then there are other points in the agreement where the language is very sweeping um, and broad. And one of them is where he says, if Epstein successfully fulfills all of the terms and conditions of this agreement, the United States also agrees that it will not institute any criminal charges against any potential co-conspirators of Epstein, including but not limited to, and then it lists four names. And so, you know, what that uh, what that suggests to me is, you know, that 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 line. The first of all, that whole that whole clause is weird. I don't know why the, the federal prosecutors would be agreeing to do that. Very big red flag. It, it's just it seems like it's it's. Who knows who his co-conspirators could be? We don't even know, named and unnamed, who these people are. But then also, um, uh, you know, it, the way that word is worded, it sounds like that office is trying to bind the entire um, United States Department of Justice. Yeah, I mean that that clause about the not uh, further investigating, uh, you know, potential co-conspirators. I, I think every one of us has just sort of shook our heads and said, "What?" I mean, it, it is the the so-called immunity provision of any plea agreement. An immunity provision means what prosecutors who are giving someone a plea agreement, you know, non-prosecution agreement, plea agreement, whatever it is, what we agree in, what we agree, the government on its side to not prosecute, you know, whether it be other crimes of the defendant who's getting the agreement or other uh, uh, conduct, that is a heavily negotiated uh, part of any agreement between the government and defense. And the defense always wants as broad of an immunity provision as possible for themselves. And the government always tries to, you know, keep it as narrow as possible, though you try to be fair under the facts. But I have never, ever, ever seen an agreement that contained a provision that said, and by the way, we won't prosecute anybody else for this crime ever. It is just, it, first of all, I, I can't even imagine how that could be enforceable because who are, you know, who are we talking about? So, down the road, if if the Southern District now indicts, you know, somebody else who who was committing this crime with with Epstein, they're going to say, "Oh no, we we were one of those people covered under that agreement there." 
that said they weren't going to investigate us. And it doesn't just say not prosecute. It says not investigate, which is um, really shocking. It is. It is bizarre. And um, it's hard to understand why the government would ever do that. I mean, there's all sorts of weird stuff here, too. It's like, you know, uh, the the upon execution of the agreement, the federal grand jury investigation will be suspended. All pending grand jury subpoenas will be held in abeyance. And it was, you know, it was very much like we don't look at anything. Don't at, talk to anyone more. Don't pursue anything more. There's almost like a concern on the defense side about what they will find. They Maybe they'll find something else that will make it impossible to accept this agreement. Um, to me, that should be a red flag if you're on the government side. And, um, you know, I have to say, too, you know, obviously some of this could come into play in the Southern District's um, um, case. Now, I, there, there's enough stuff, stuff here that ties it to just this U.S. Attorney's Office that I um, – and there's, there's a good case law out there. So I think that this agreement's not going to limit um, the Southern District's uh, prosecution. But there are there's some language in here that's sloppy that seems like it it, it it binds the entire Justice Department. And usually these agreements, in my experience, um, certainly in my district and I know in your former district, contain a disclaimer that says that you can't bind any other agreement, uh, any other district. And it's it's curious to me that that's not here at all. It's weird. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because Acosta in his press conference said several times, you know, um, I'm really glad this is uh, being, you know, prosecuted by another office now. And, you know, sort of it all, although he didn't come out and say it, indicating that he didn't think that agreement that he entered into stopped it. But there is no question that the Southern District is going to have some litigation on its hands um, about this agreement, right? I mean, the defense uh, in New York now has already uh, several times, you know, both to the judge and in writing and, and you know, said, um, we think this is absolutely barred by the agreement in Florida. I think ultimately the Southern District of New York will prevail on this. They, something they clearly, I mean, they put it, they put a preemptive argument about it in their bail letter. The, the right. government did, the Southern District of New York saying, hey, by the way, no statute of limitations problem here. Um, even though this isn't relevant to bail, we just want you to know there's no statute of limitations problem, which they're absolutely right about. And also, we're not bound by that Florida agreement, and here's why. And they sort of put a very shortened version of the argument. So they, they I guarantee you there were hours of research and meetings that went on about this before the Southern District brought their charges. So they have thought this through. Um, but it is, there are contradictory things in the agreement. Um, there is not the explicit language that you would expect about not binding other districts. Um, but the, the case law in the Second Circuit is, is quite good on this, that, in fact, it needs to be explicit that it is binding other districts. So I do think ultimately they win, but they will have litigation on their hands, no doubt. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, one one of our listeners, Ada, you know, asked whether or not these unnamed co-conspirators have immunity. Uh, and if so, could that ever be changed? And I I really think that I, I think the you know I, I my answer would be that they 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 have an argument that they do but they probably don't I don't think a judge would enforce this agreement but I think it's a very da- there's a danger here that was created by very poor at very least poor and shoddy work uh, by the team that drafted this agreement. Right. I mean, that's sort of what this whole case, when we're looking back at it, you know, is it was it just a, a matter of sort of not standing up to defense attorneys, doing sloppy work, 
um, you know, giving a, someone a break who absolutely did not deserve it, um, you know, not treating the victims well because they just, they weren't uh, looking out for them. And, and it was, you know, so, I mean, all of these things would be bad. It would be, you know, possibly unethical. It, w- it would be, uh, you know, something that, that we should look down upon. But there's always this looming question out there of was it something more than that? Was there something more corrupt than that? What, I mean, the why of this, the why did Acosta let Epstein get this deal? Why did they put this language limiting the ability of the FBI to investigate co-conspirators? Was it, was it sloppy? Was it you know, sort of careless? Or was it not wanting the FBI to uncover um, potential crimes or, or misconduct of other, maybe even more important people. And, and I, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist about this and, and, and fuel rumors, but that is the question that we've all been asking. And I, I, I think that there's enough to it that, that we sort of deserve real answers, we, the public, um, and the victims that, you know, and the Department of Justice should have an interest in, in getting those answers because this is a real like systematic failure. Um, and, you know, the Office of Professional Responsibility is uh, of the Department of Justice is looking into it. I don't know that we will know the results of their investigation because they tend to be um, pretty opaque. But, uh, you know, I, I hope that they are asking that question. Was this sort of carelessness, sloppiness or worse? Yeah, I do think the public has a right to know this is something that has an impact beyond this particular case, because, you know, in my mind, there are victims out there who are wondering whether they should come forward. And this, to me, can influence victims into thinking that there is, you know, that this is how they may be treated by the federal government. It, to me, it's 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 alarming and it, it, it has much broader implications than just this um, case, no matter – in this case, of course, itself is very significant, but it has broader implications than that. Um, one one – one uh, one I think issue that I th- is worth talking about a little bit is people. Um, one thing I think people don't completely understand, so I want to explain it a little bit is how it is that uh, and and how it is that the Southern District of New York can be charging not only the conduct that occurred in Florida. Uh, excuse me, in New York, but also the conduct that occurred in Florida. And that's fairly straightforward, but I think that's useful to explain because some people seem to be confused about that. Um, sure. So, I mean, basically, um, you know, the as long as you have what's called venue, so in other words, um, you have sort of jurisdiction over the crime because some of the acts took place in your district here, the Southern District of New York, you can still include as part of that conspiracy, as part of that um, overall uh, criminal uh, conduct acts that took place elsewhere. So if the conduct was only in Florida, you know, literally all the conduct took place there. There was never any act here, uh, never a phone call to here in New York. Um, that that would be a problematic. Um, but here they have conduct in both places, so they're able to charge both. Um, and for the reasons we talked about, I don't think that the agreement um, that Florida entered should bar, should ban, uh, prohibit the Southern District of New York from charging that same conduct now. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And that helps explain people have asked me the same thing about the R. Kelly uh, indictment in, in Brooklyn, and which 
charges conduct across the country. And it's a similar sort of thing. If you have a scheme or an enterprise or a conspiracy and at least part of it takes place in that district, then you can charge. You know, one question another listener had, Meg Carter had, was whether or not um, uh, Mr. Acosta will ever face uh, any sort of penalty or be brought to justice in some sort of way for violating the Crime Victims' Rights Act? It's a very good question, a complicated question. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that, Mimi? So are you, you're asking about criminal charges? Well, they, yes, yeah, she, she termed it as criminal charges. Of course, it's not a criminal uh, statute, and maybe we can explain. I, right. I think there's difficulty. One thing that the public um, should be aware of is, and I would just say for myself, that First of all, is, there's no uh, Mr. Acosta, to my knowledge, didn't commit a crime, although it, it's certainly anything's possible, but we don't have any evidence at this point that he committed a crime. Violating the Crime Victims' Rights Act is a civil violation, but it's very hard um, to bring um, civil or criminal acts, uh, excuse me, um, civil or criminal actions against prosecutors for their conduct in how they conduct cases. They have a lot of discretion. And the law makes it hard to do because they don't want prosecutors looking over their shoulder and worried about their own potential liability when they're making these decisions. Uh, they want them to be able to have the freedom to make the right decision. Uh, but of course, then when you have situations like this where a prosecutor does something that appears to be wrong, I think that can be a situation where it seems like an injustice has occurred and the, and the person doesn't get punished for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to admit, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't, I'm not sure what the remedy here vis-a-vis -vis the individual prosecutors involved would be. In other words, I think there's remedies for the victims in terms of the case as a whole. And I think that's one of the ongoing litigation issues in Florida, which may become a little bit, you know, mute now, given that there's this new case in the Southern District. But I think one of the things the judge in Florida is trying to do is find some remedy for the, the victims in Florida. But as to the actual prosecutors, as far as I know, you know, the the only real sort of um, uh, consequence is that the Department of Justice, you know, does this investigation, as we said, through the Office of Professional Responsibility. And if they find that any one of the prosecutors violated their uh, sort of obligations as a prosecutor or, or department con and or departmental conduct uh, and policies, you know, that person could lose their job. Uh, or something more minor like receive a letter of reprimand in their file. But most of these prosecutors aren't there anymore. So I, I don't, you know, I'm not really sure what, what the, that, how that would play out. Indeed. And, and I would also just say um, you could potentially have um, an action taken against the person's law license, potentially. I don't know, um, yeah. you know, um, how, you know, whether that would happen, but it's possible. I also would just say that, in the legal, legal community, um, your reputation matters. And I think that this, the, you know, Mr. Acosta's activity here will have an effect on him. But it is fair to say that whatever happened here, and I, we may find out more, that it is certainly uh, possible that Mr. Acosta will not face the sort of penalty um, for his conduct that um, many others would face for engaging in potential misconduct. So, um, it's unfortunate, but that's just, uh, you know, part of the system that we have for better or for worse. And I think that's why, look, the, the fact of him resigning today, 
was, I think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't change what happened. I, I don't know how much satisfaction it brings to the victims. Um, but hopefully a little bit in the sense that, you know, I think one of the, the other outrages of the story was Acosta should not have been in the position of power he was in, given his handling and lack of adequate explanation about this case in the past. Um, and particularly that he was head of the Department of Labor, which oversees uh, human trafficking, which includes sex trafficking. So I think that, you know, there was a little bit in my mind of uh, justice today in that respect. I, I agree with that. Um, one question that Mike Davis had was, he, he asked, didn't a judge approve the NPA? If so, how is it possible that the judge did not enforce the VCRA and inform the victims? Good question. I, 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 there's a pretty poignant answer to that. Do, uh, Mimi, what are your, do you want to give that or, or you want me to go ahead? Uh, go, I mean, I have a thought, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. Oh, my, my thought, I, my understanding is that I believe that they hid that fact from the judge. And I thought the judge raised the issue. Mm. My, my recollection is that the judge raised the issue. Um, and there was at least some indication that the judge was misled. That was my, my understanding of it. But the judge, it was not made clear to the judge. Um, certainly the judge was not on notice that the victims weren't notified. That's how that happened. So, um, you know, it's very long after the fact at this point. Um, and that's why, you know, it can be hard for there anything to happen. If this all came to light, you know, two months after it happened, I think that judge might have had something to say about it. But it's 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 too late in the game, I think, for anything to happen there. But um, that's that's my understanding, unless your understanding is different, Mimi. No, I mean, I, I, I can't, sitting here right now, remember what, um, I'm sure Judge Mara addressed this in the opinion, and I, I just don't remember, but I, that was what I was going to say, was that I, I'm assuming that the judge that signed off on the MPA did not have, you know, sort of the full, you'd have to know all of the background and what had or hadn't happened with the victims and what charges could have been brought and weren't brought, all of those things would have had to be known to the judge for, for that judge signing off to understand that this was a violation. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that they didn't have the full story. Yeah. Um, you know, another kind of a, a, an issue that, that a, a lot of folks are interested in as well is will, you know, what, what do we, what do we think about, there's not many questions about the subject for many people who are listening M- questions about, um, what, what do, do is there a specter that uh, Attorney General Barr or others in the Trump administration may interfere with this investigation in some way? And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. With the Southern District case, yes. um, yeah. Look, I'm I'm nervous about that. You know, I, I I mean I think I've said a couple of times, and I'll say it again. I'm I'm I don't trust Bill Barr. I I can't believe I've gotten to a point where that is where I am as a general matter on our attorney general, but he has just shown himself time and time again in all different parts of his job, whether it be um, talking about the Mueller investigation or the census litigation uh, and the citizenship question to just constantly come out sort of with a very, you know, whatever it is that Trump's position is that you can pretty much assure yourself that that's what Bill Barr, the attorney general, is also going to say whether it seems to comport with the law or not. Um, He just seems very uh, oriented towards defending Trump at all costs. 
um, and not sort of looking out for justice, you know, little word and Department of Justice, uh, you know, with capital letters. So I don't trust him. And, you know, I don't know sort of how close to Trump or or anybody else, Republican or Democrat, this uh, investigation could get. I mean, right now it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, we know there was an association. There was a friendship at one point. Um, does that mean that Trump committed a crime with respect with Epstein? No. And it may be that that's that. But um, I think that given Barr's um, recusal, his decision to recuse with respect to the Florida piece of this and the retroactive, uh, uh, retrospective look at what happened in Florida, he should also recuse from overseeing this investigation in the Southern District of New York, because I don't understand how he can draw this line and say, well, I had this relationship with these Kirkland and Ellis lawyers who represented Epstein in Florida, so I'm, I'm not going to be part of that. But it's fine for me to be, you know, oversee the Southern District of New York investigation because that's, you know, doesn't that's separate. But but it isn't. As we have just been discussing, you know, on this podcast, it is very much going to be um, a part of the litigation and the questions and, and the facts that come out in, in this case as well. Indeed. I, I will say that, um, you know, I think one thing that I do want to say to everyone is there's a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of questions about as, as you put it, Mimi, all these other names of you know important, famous, you know powerful people who were associated with Epstein, some of whom were in you know at least in his proximity in relation to some of the locations where these this these crimes allegedly occurred. Um, you know, uh, and a lot of people are asking or have left to conclusions. Well, does this mean so and so is going to charge be charged or so and so? I will say this, based upon my review of the Southern District in, uh, indictment, there's nothing in the indictment that indicates to me that there's additional charges that are going to come against any particular person. It seems to me to be very much geared towards Epstein. And if anything, when I read the indictment, what I see is an indictment that goes through enough detail to put the conspiracy out there, but doesn't get into a lot of details because probably because it doesn't want to pin down um, it's victim witnesses because, you know, frankly, it's hard to say the exact same, you know, the facts are going to come out a little differently every time you say something. I don't think they wanted to put it a specific way in, in, a, in an indictment. That would be my guess, but it's unclear why they didn't offer even more detail than they did because there's certainly a lot of detail about Epstein. And there's going to be more um, potential charges that get added to of Epstein or so on, but nothing that we've seen in the record to me, indicates that there's going to be charges brought against anyone else. Is that would that be your reading as well? Yeah, I would say so far that would be my reading. And I, but you know, we just don't know, right? Um, Correct. Uh, there, there could be, but but yes, there's nothing so far that that sort of indicates that. Um, I, one other thing I'll add on this point, though, is that. I don't think there's anything about these charges right now, as we know them, um, that would suggest that Bill Barr should have a big say or really any say in what happens in this case. This is a sex trafficking case right now. And those kind of cases do not, to my memory, require any kind of approval from Maine Justice. Um, even at the, you know, the deputy AG level, the DAG level, or certainly not the attorney general level. 
Um, so I'm not sure, you know, how he could insert himself, even if he wanted to. The the one counter to all of this, though, and actually counters a little bit what we were just saying about additional charges, is this sort of mystery of why this sex trafficking case is being run out of the public corruption unit of the Southern District of New York. Um, that does suggest that maybe there is not necessarily, you know, could be other other people to be charged or could be other charges of a public corruption nature against, I guess, you know, Epstein and other people. Well, let, you know, let's talk a little bit about that because you were in the Southern District of New York and I and I was not. I was in the Northern District of Illinois. You know, in my office, I, I was in um, mul- different sections at different times, but I was, you know, spent much of my time there focusing on complex white collar crime. And I, you know, I spent much of my time either in, um, you know, the securities and commodities fraud unit or in the um, financial crimes and special prosecutions unit. But even though I was in those units, there were complex sexual um, uh, crimes that I got involved with, human trafficking and sexual um, uh, molestation type cases that I got involved in because they were complex and they needed an experienced prosecutor and I expressed an interest in working in those cases. The fact that I was working on it didn't mean it had a connection to the type of work I was ordinarily doing. Is it possible that there was a prosecutor, you know, like Ms. Comey or someone else who's in the public corruption unit who just cared a lot about this case? So, okay, let me explain a little bit. Um, And this is public in the sense that, you know, there are phone lists out there that talk about the Southern District of New York and, you know, list the prosecutors and their phone numbers and and what units they're in. So this is is all public. Maureen Comey, who is one of the prosecutors you mentioned, is not in the public corruption unit. She's actually in what's called the violent crimes unit. Mm-hmm. Um, she does mostly, and she's, she's done a lot of violent crimes, gangs cases, murder cases. She also did, I know, sex trafficking cases. Mm. Um, did, did them as, as when she spent some time up in our uh, White Plains office where I was a supervisor. Um, and also, I believe, in the, in the violent crimes unit. So she actually is not in the public corruption unit. The other two prosecutors who are on the case are in the public corruption unit. And the way that it is phrased, um, and, and one of them is, um, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on the names, of course, but it, it, I know that the other, I looked, and both of the other two prosecutors who I don't know um, personally are in the public corruption unit. And the way it's phrased in the press release is that the case is being run out of the public corruption mm. unit, which means it's being supervised from that unit. And in fact, the supervisor, one of the chiefs of the public corruption unit was at the press conference. Interesting. Um, I, and, um, and then it says, in conjunction with the office's human trafficking coordinator. And that's the way it works in the Southern District. There is no human trafficking unit or sex trafficking unit, but there are, uh, there's a human trafficking coordinator who kind of coordinates the cases that exist in different parts of the office. So there is no, there is no special unit that a case like this would normally be in. It would normally, I, I think, you know, more commonly be in the violent crimes unit, the general crimes unit, um, um, either different units that, that it could be in. Um, and so you're right that it could be a prosecutor from almost any unit working on it. But this case is specifically being 
it's you know run out of supervised out of the public corruption unit. So that that seems a little unique to me. That's interesting. Yeah, I so my it, it worked exactly the same in the Northern District of Illinois, which probably isn't a surprise. One of the, the U.S. attorney who hired me came from the Southern District. Um, so right. okay, we ran our offices, I think, very similarly. We had a coordinator on, on these activities and prosecutors, as you pointed out, throughout the office handled these cases. I was one of them. And even though I was, there was no unit for this particular type of, of crime, it was handled by prosecutors for many units. But in my experience, the, the, it was supervised out of whatever section the main prosecutor was from. And so, you know, it might be supervised by the coming out of the Securities and Commodities Fraud Unit or coming out of the Special Prosecutions Unit. But, you know, what that meant was just that the lead prosecutor was there. I, I will see. I just, what I worry about is the speculation has been so great that I want to keep everyone yeah. grounded to the extent that we don't know yet uh, what that exactly means. I agree. And I, I, I've tried to sort of also send that message as well. Um, but it, it, you know, it, it could be nothing. It could mean something. I mean, I hate to be that vague, but <laughs> that's really, we're going to be honest about it. That's where we are. Well, one question I want to ask you, um, and I think this is a good way of, of um, wrapping up some of this is uh, one of our listeners, Adam Rifkin asked, why did it take so long for justice to be done in this case? And um, what, you know, does the, do the wheels of justice really grind that slowly? Um, It's a great question. Um, And, you know, I, I guess in this particular case, I don't, I don't think that's a question that I, that anyone can answer as to sort of, you know, all cases, but in this case, I think, and this is this is why this case, and one of the reasons why this case has gotten so much attention, so upsetting and, and tragic for those of us, again, who you know grew up in the Department of Justice and, and loved the Department of Justice, is that justice here for these victims seems to have been delayed in large part because the prosecutors in the first instance, right, the, a case getting to the point where you have prosecutors, federal prosecutors and agents who are focused on the case, who are investigating the case, that's frankly sometimes the hardest part is to, is to sort of get that kind of investigation going, um, get, get the evidence that you need, um, doing the investigation. But once it's in that place where it's being focused on by FBI agents, uh, federal prosecutors who care so much about these types of crimes, you know, ju- justice is going to be done. And, and there was just, that's why I used earlier this idea of the failure, you know, a systematic failure. It just fell apart here. And we've talked a lot, you know, today about some of the possible reasons why, and we still don't know maybe all of the reasons why. But once that happened, it, it got kind of buried. I mean, we don't ordinarily go back and examine other prosecutors aren't going to go back and examine what another U.S. attorney's office did. If someone came to me in the Southern District of New York back in 2007 and said, or 2008 or nine, it's like, you know, they just reached this deal with this Epstein guy in Florida, and uh, it you know, really seems wholly inadequate. I would not jump at the chance to go look at what a fellow prosecutor's office did unless there was something somebody very concretely could give me and tell me, because that. And you can't run a Department of Justice like that doing that. So it really was the reporting of Julie Brown who, you know, got specific facts out into the public record that I think did cause uh, prosecutors to go back and, and, and really take a hard look at 
that deal that had been reached by another office. So that, that's that's a long and probably unsatisfactory answer, but I think this was a, a, a unique situation here in, in many ways. Indeed, and I, I agree with you completely. I would say, too, that, you know, people, one question that's related to that people have asked me is, why would a defendant enter in a deal with a single U.S. attorney's office if they knew that they had potential liability elsewhere? And I think the answer is, you know, usually for the, for the reasons you said, Mimi, if you resolve, if you, if one district has an open investigation and you resolve it, that typically means it goes away. I mean, it's not like other districts are going to pick up the same case. And so, you know, typically people just resolve the case in front of them. And and Mr. Epstein really thought that he had, uh, you know, to use the language of the the, the agreement, a global resolution. He thought that, you know, there was, this would resolve the matter. But of course, that was not the case. And really, it was through. It was due to, as you point out, the the uncovering by Julie Brown of of evidence that there was something very rotten uh, with this agreement, and so um, it is. It, Frank, I re- I really hope comes out of this is not only justice for these victims, but a real um, um, a, a level of public scrutiny that um, changes practices in the future to, to make prosecutors, um, more, uh, you know, fear, I say, make prosecutors fear the fact that they're, whatever they're doing is going to make, is going to come to light so that we don't have a repeat of a, a circumstance like this again. I totally agree with that. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Mimi. I really appreciate it. It's such an important topic uh, and one that, frankly, uh, I am glad that we're finally able to talk about in a in a positive sense that there's some positive progress as opposed to just uh, uh, lamenting about what happened in the past. Absolutely. It does feel like, uh, you know, all of the attention that's been on this case and the public outcry and the talking about it at least had some uh, impact, you know, both in the resignation today uh, by Acosta and also um, the charges that are going to be brought. And I hope that, the, you know, I've, I've already seen the victims make statements saying that they feel a renewed sense of trust and, and hope. Um, and that's, that's good. Amen. Let's all have hope. If you enjoyed this episode, please look in the description and fill out our first ever listener survey. We really want your feedback, and you'll get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. 
All we do is give. 